0: to the Warpod, a podcast now based at Safer World, asking international experts about the risks of contemporary conflict and how we create a safer world. I'm Abigail Watson, Conflict and Security Policy Coordinator at Safer World. In this episode, we will relaunch the Warpod as part of Safer World by examining the biggest security risks facing the world and what policies we should develop to make the world a safer place. To do this, I will be speaking to Larry Atry, Head of Global Policy and Advocacy at Safer World, AJ Tahir, Policy, Advocacy and Communications Manager for Somali and Somaliland at Safer World, and Alina Godger, an independent analyst and usually co host of the podcast. Enjoy the show. Welcome. Please, could you start by introducing yourself?
1: I'm Larry Atry and I head up Safer World's policy team. So I spent the first decade of my career working in conflict settings with like the UN, the OSCE and things like that in the Balkans, the Pacific, Asia and Africa. And building on that, I spent the second basically trying to change the way the international community engages in conflict settings. So I head Safer World's teams trying to shift the policy thinking in the UK, Europe, the US and at the UN. And the last couple of years, I've also been trying to help create a global security policy alternatives network. And that's something for civil society in conflict settings to have more of a say in debates and decisions on international security policies and interventions. And SPAN, I'm very pleased to say now, has over 60 member organizations all over the world.
2: My name is Abdul Khalil Dahir. I'm the Policy Advocacy and Communications Manager uh, for Safe World Somalia and Somaliland. I have been Working on uh, this sector for the last 10 years, mainly working on governance, democratization, and uh, elections. So, currently in Somalia at SaferWal, we had been working on peace building, community security, and uh, governance projects. We had uh, offices in Hargeisa, Mogadishu, and also uh, field presence in Kismayo and Baidawa.
3: My name is Delina Gojo. I'm an independent consultant and I'm currently based in Brussels. Um, I work on remote warfare and I'm currently focusing on the Sahel and West Africa from a European Union perspective mostly. Um, Prior to this, I was covering Open Society Foundation's portfolio on drones in Europe. And also, I've been working for, for European institutions and for the NATO Parliamentary Assembly. I'm also At the moment, I have started a PhD at the Scuola Normale Superiore and Scuola Sant'Anna, and the focus is, once again, remote warfare and the Sahel region.
0: Thank you very much. Over the past two years, this podcast has explored the many dangers contemporary conflict poses to civilians and long-term prospects for peace. To start with, Larry, you've led Safer World's work this year to reflect on global trends in conflict and responses to it. Can you start by outlining some of the key developments that you're most concerned about
1: last year we were working on our strategic plan in safer world and so we got a team of analysts from across the organization in all our different programs to come together and look at some of the big trends in conflict and responses to it and i think the big picture from that is that we think the world is getting more unstable and that it's going to continue doing so conflict has increased a lot globally in the last decade We've also seen a sharp rise in authoritarianism, growing securitization, and restriction of rights and freedoms. So, for example, in 2019, autocracies became the majority of countries for the first time since 2001. We're also seeing increased military spending. And diminishing commitment to disarmament. So you could consider that from 1999 to 2019, global military spending went up by 78% around the world. We're also looking at a world in which inequality is intensifying in all its different forms. So for example, Oxfam have shown that the 22 richest men in the world have more wealth than all the women in Africa. Another sort of core issue is environmental degradation and the multi-layered impacts of the climate emergency, which of course have a lot of implications for stability and resources and pushing people to move around in settings where That can create difficulties. And then we also have technology. And technology is doing some really good things, uh, like increasing levels of political participation, a huge amount but it's also doing some really bad things. And I think some of the work exploring how technology is caught up with trends in polarisation, and then the phenomena around tech-driven social control, and the sort of questionable relations between repressive orders and big tech companies, I think are sort of big cause for concern. And so when you sort of add up that picture, what you also see is that there's a popular reaction. 2019, for example, was a year of massive protests. So elites concentrate wealth and power uh, and people grow unrestful. And we're also seeing because of this more securitized approach to governing that when people protest, there's a backlash. So all of those trends presage sort of further violent conflicts around the globe going forward. And when we think about what kind of conflict we're talking about, I think worth bearing in mind certain trends. So the most bloody wars in the last decade have been these sort of internationalized civil wars, especially those involving prescribed groups, designated as terrorists these are the kind of most intractable conflicts in these settings you have patterns of geopolitical rivalry making it really hard to deal effectively with the kind of core issues of state society relations that underpin the conflicts and when the internationals get involved these sort of war wars on drugs war on terror wars to stop irregular migration and making problems worse so people are increasingly asking how do we get out of the forever war that we're seeing another kind of key facet of these contexts which hard to deal with is sort of illicit and grey economies, criminal elements that complicate the landscape and make it really hard to sort of incentivise solutions to bring about the end to conflict. And then in terms of responses to conflict, I think when you have more authoritarian governments in the ascendancy, you're also seeing governments who favour harder responses to conflict or who see it as a power gain, who more assertively reject accountability, rights, empowerment, calls for restraint, development efforts, who make louder appeals to sovereignty and these kind of governments also tend to favor international responses to conflict that reinforce state authority in the conflict zone rather than pushing for reform and do that regardless of the conduct of the national government or regional powers. So a classic example is Russia's reaction to the Syrian war. So I think all of these are key challenges which future foreign and security policy is going to need to grapple with and we're looking at what is really not a particularly conducive environment for conflict management.
0: Thanks Larry. That's really useful for laying out the global fairly troubling picture that we're now seeing and I'm really excited to have both Delina and AJ to talk about what this means for regions and in other international responses. So I think maybe first I'll go to Delina, as well as co-host of the WarPod. You've also been examining some of these trends with regards to the EU's response to the Sahel. Do the comments that Larry just made resonate with your own work?
3: Yeah, I would definitely agree with Larry. I think it makes perhaps more sense, of course, if I zoom in into the region, and if I tackle it from a European perspective, I will not be mentioning all of the trends that Larry outlined, because I think some of the trends that he mentioned are more relevant to this region. I think it makes more sense to keep it brief. So I think in terms of drawbacks, first of all, it doesn't seem like we, and by we, I mean European, I mean the EU, I mean member states, but I also would mean, now it's sad to say, I also mean the UK um, and the US as well. So first of all, it doesn't seem like we focus nearly enough resources on the governance component of instability in the Sahel specifically. We keep saying this, and yet we seem unable to make the next step and actually do something about it. Secondly, I think one of the problems with our priorities in the Sahel, so this whole idea of getting buy-in from Sahelian partners is very much marred by European self-interested security agendas. So so as Europeans, we constantly mention that security in the Sahel corresponds to security in the EU, which may be beneficial internally, um, but it gives leverage to a lot of self-interested actors, such as, for example, some Sahelian elites who are aware that the EU will support them no matter what. Maybe this is a communications issue only, but I see it as very substantial, not just formal. Thirdly, the choice of partners itself. This uh, has proven time and time again, and the last stroke in the Sahel is the coup in Mali, but we have endless other conflict examples that showcase this. It is not possible to make credible partners appear by just wanting it to. So both the EU and member states are not putting nearly enough pressure on Sahelian political elites to improve corruption, rule of law, and more in general, governance records. So we keep providing aid, we keep providing development, humanitarian, and most importantly, security assistance to Sahelian capitals, but this risks unintentionally reinforcing corrupt and non-democratic regimes. I think from a European perspective, it also makes sense to mention the fact that the high representative, which is the external action main representative in the EU, um, has recently proposed this idea of setting up a new off-budget fund, which is called the European Peace Facility, and is a fund outside the European Union's multi-annual budget. This fund is potentially worth about 5 billion euros, and it will enable the financing of operational actions uh, within the European common security, common foreign and security policy. And the fund would have military and defense implications. So this means that the EU will be able to provide military equipment that is lethal equipment to precisely those elites and those governments that potentially do not respect a certain set of standards. The EU keeps responding that, of course, they will uphold the usual humanitarian and human rights uh, law components, but this doesn't mean that they will be able to do it properly because if they consider the Malian government and they present Bamako as a reliable partner, this is just ludicrous and will end up causing potentially more harm than good.
0: Thanks, Delina. And I want to go straight to you, H. A a similar question how do the trends and challenges that larry outlined how do they relate to the work that you've been doing in somalia and the wider region
2: i agree with Larry, the trends he had mentioned it, and as you know, Somalia has had a long-running conflict for close to thirty years, which means that the formal security and uh, justice structures have been significantly degraded. With a lot of focus of the focus shifting to uh, dealing with the insurgency in the country. In recent years, you know, non-state armed groups have carried out bombings, suicide attacks, you know, and at the same time, the military operations have resulted also in the sporadic death, injury, displacement of a civilian uh, population. In addition to that, you know, the country had political crisis over the elections uh, since last year, which is not yet being solved. And uh, as you know, the mandate of the current federal government of Somalia had ended just four days ago. And also that really, really a threat to the country because everyone is focusing on the election and what the future of the country will look like while forgetting and neglecting the fight with the armed groups, which poses a threat to the country in general and lastly the uh, internal conflict between the federal government and tribal federal member state of the gather region in tribalan which the federal government and the federal member state are fighting over the control as the election is coming near on who will manage as constituency is also another challenge and finally when you look from the international perspective when trump administration ordered the withdrawal of the american forces based in Somalia, mainly out of the Beledogle Air Force in Lower Shabelle, is also another challenge for the country in general, because, you know, those who are supporting the, the Somali police forces and in the fight of the armed groups. So that's the main challenges in Somalia.
0: Thanks, AJ. That's really useful. As we look forward to think about where these challenges might go in the next 12 months and beyond that, it's hard to ignore the outbreak of COVID-19, which has changed our societies dramatically. I'd like to go straight back to you, AJ, and ask what the impact of COVID-19 has been for Somalia.
2: When it comes to a country like Somalia, which had a long running of conflict and, you know, half of the population is economically active and basically, in Somalia last year it was uh, difficult uh, for the whole country and the communities we serve for suffering the impact because you know that most of the essential goods in Somalia are imported like food, medicine, fuel from other countries and more than 70% of the population are depending on remittances coming from Somali diaspora in other countries so this pandemic was uh, a global and it affected in every country and that also Resulted, you know, decrease in the remittances coming to uh, Somalia, which a lot of families have been supported by through these remittances. And the other challenge is that in Somalia, where the medical facilities and the health centres are not up to the standard, as well as Somali people not going to hospitals for checkup for testing COVID nineteen, that resulted really a low number of uh, reporting in terms of. Cases and for the last year alone, eighty-one thousand people were tested, and only four thousand seven hundred and twenty-six tested positively on the COVID nineteen. That was a major challenge in terms of COVID nineteen and the impact. When it comes to our work and how it affected the government, COVID nineteen protocol is including the travel ban, social distancing, and really. You know, halted some of the activities that we wanted to carry out in 2020 as we work with local communities in uh, Kismayo, Baidoa and in Mogadishu. So, you know, our staff and our partners were not able to travel due to travel ban within Somalia. So... You know, we postponed some of the activities. Also, we did some adaptation just to make sure that we are complying with the protocol imposed by the government and doing some activities which were necessary to be carried out.
0: Delina, how... Has COVID-19 impacted the Sahel region?
3: I would say it's a very similar situation to what AJ just described. COVID-19 is less of an issue in the Sahel than it is perceived in other parts of the world. Probably it risks having an exacerbating effect on a number of dynamics, but it is not a priority in the eyes of many local observers. So it could compound an already problematic humanitarian situation. By exposing more than 50 million people to food insecurity. For example, in just three of the Sahel countries uh, Burkina Faso, Niger, and Mali, more than 13 million people are in need of humanitarian assistance, which marks an increase of nearly 60% over the past 12 months. So we can only imagine what it could be like in the coming 12 months. More than a million and a half people in the region are internally displaced, which makes an increase of 300% since the start of um, 2019. And there is, of course, a risk of governments using the pandemic for political gain or to repress dissent, which is something that we had seen in Niger at the beginning of the pandemic, I think. And because the informal economy provides most of the employment in the region, it should be, of course, better protected against the shocks such as the COVID-19 pandemic. So I would say less problematic than a number of other issues. Of course, it goes much like AJ said for Somalia, it goes underreported. So that is a problem as well.
0: Larry, going back to the trends that you outlined in your first question, are you worried about the difference made by COVID-19 and how the international community will respond to conflict and instability in its wake?
1: Well, I think the short answer to that is yes, very worried. What I mean by that is there's a few issues to go through. I highlighted earlier the trend in rising authoritarianism. And this is really important for stability, because I think in every conflict setting I've worked in, the core issue at the heart of the conflict dynamics was the quality of governance, how inclusive, how fair, how responsive, how accountable are the authorities in society to their people. Authoritarianism already rising rapidly before COVID came a long. But consider that in 2020, all but 20 countries in the world restricted freedoms in the wake of COVID-19. So in positions of emergency or martial law, shutdowns of media and civic space, normalisation of erosions of privacy, extension of totalitarian norms, the security sector playing a problematic role in tackling a health emergency. We've seen all of these things in the wake of COVID. I think what one expects is that most countries will sort of go back to normal as and when The pandemic dies down. But many governments we know will take advantage. Some of the measures written into law will stick around. And I think in a world that's already becoming more authoritarianism, that is really worrying. A second core issue that I would really pull out is the unprecedented economic downturn. The Economist recently projected that the pandemic could amount to $10 trillion in foregone GDP over 2020 to 2021. But I think what is also startling is that this is an economic crisis that is hitting the poorest in an unprecedented way because of the way it's shutting down jobs in the catering service industry and these kind of things. So it's a pandemic that's affecting livelihoods food security and equality on a massive scale in an already very unequal world and I think that has obvious risks of feeding into conflict. So one can expect the shockwaves of this, the reverberations of polarisation and unrest, the tensions between public health measures and the means by which people meet their basic needs to keep causing problems for some time to come I think. So there's a lot of reason to be worried about the pandemic's impacts on stability but as to the outlook for how the international community responds. Responds to conflict and crisis. There could be some silver linings here. So the pandemic definitely exposed the dangers of irresponsible and incompetent government in the U.S., ousting Donald Trump from power. And at the multilateral level, Biden's arrival offers at least four years rest from Trumpism. So one observation is that we could see similar shifts elsewhere. But that could also work in the other direction if you have, say, liberal governments in power and nationalist critics attacking their response to the pandemic, you can see shifts in the other direction. But either way, Biden or no, I think there are still enormous questions about how peace and security actors are responding to conflict and the impact they're having at the moment. So one thing to highlight there is that these containment approaches to security challenges like popular unrest, like violent rebellion, like terrorism or violent extremism, as many people call them, like forced displacement have been ongoing for some time. But containment approaches are increasingly being relied on, as we heard. So Somalia, the containment approach there to Al-Shabaab has been going on for a long time. In the Sahel, we're seeing a lot more of that. Delina described (laughs) the advent of the European Peace Facility. So Europe investing a lot more in these kind of security partnerships with repressive and destabilizing allies to squash down armed rebellion as the way forward. And I think that means that we could increasingly see international responses to conflict getting stuck in the quagmire of situations where they're enforcing an unruly peace. So the Afghanistan, the Somalia, the Yemen, the Iraq the Sahel experience being played out again and again in further context. I think the flip side of that is that you could say that this is an international community which is neglecting more thoroughgoing conflict transformation efforts. And I think in the wake of COVID, this is going to get worse. So you're looking at a big drop in GDP around the world, and therefore a big drop in tax revenues and a big drop in official development assistance. And on top of that, reallocations to direct COVID responses means you're going to see a sharp drop in funding for complex long-term work on stability, peace and conflict prevention. And this is in the context of another longer-term trend, which is the sort of weak championing of democracy and human rights from less confident, more internally divided liberal states. So an economically weak US, a less assertive European Union that's less clear about what it stands for, which include, increasingly has sort of nationalist governments amongst member states. So our work has flagged concerns about... About this as a direction of travel. And I think even the realists who favour these kind of stabilisation responses to conflict would have to acknowledge the failure of the containment approach to conflict management in recent decades. So I think the big question going forward is whether the arrival of a Biden administration and the mounting sense of crisis in the shrinking liberal democratic bloc of countries will at last catalyse the search for a new, more coherent strategic approach to international crises and conflict management
0: that last glimmer of hope at the end sort of speaks to the thing that we want to achieve over the next year or so is to to first outline the challenges which you've you've all eloquently done already. Delina maybe I'll come to you first. What concrete changes would you like to see policymakers adopt towards the Sahel?
3: A lot of criticism has been made around both European and French approaches to the Sahel and to their approaches to security more in general. What I find frustrating in this debate is that there is no need to look for illuminating new analysis, new ways to look at the problem. The European policymakers that have been working on sub-Saharan Africa but also on other regions. Those that have been working on this region for some time now know that the problem is not really terrorism. The problem is state administration in Niger, in Mali, in Burkina. A former Dutch diplomat, I think I would like to mention her because I I found her analysis to be excellent. Um, She's been based in Bamako for a long time, and she recently said that the importance of good state institutions, credible administration, is no news and yet, now that the Sahel is at the forefront of EU's agenda for security-related reasons, it is presented at the, as this new approach, this eye-opening new vision on the Sahel. The crisis of representation and auto-exclusion from political sphere is very much widespread in the region. Both parliament and constitutional court in Mali have lost all leverage and uh, they have lost the trust in the eyes of their citizens. Civil society and the press as well have become very much politicized. For example, something like vote buying is commonplace, which of course creates a vicious cycle that ultimately ends up unveiling the the rupture of the social contract. I will not go into detail on what is happening within ministries of defense, where salaries, for example, are not paid, soldiers are mistreated, they are sent to the battlefield without proper support. But this is what ultimately makes all security operations unsuccessful. And in general, security strategies is this lack of a series of welfare functioning institutions. So all in all, I believe this is where we should be focusing as the EU and as EU member states. If the EU wishes to keep investing in the Sahel because it sees the region as fundamental to some of its policy objectives, then it should by go all these potential neo-colonial fears and invest in Sahelian state building, promote the role of institutions that work well. For example, something like the Haute Autorité uh, for for Peace Consolidation in Niger, um, promote something like the Force Conjointe Compliance framework, which is a practical document that sets out practical objectives and impose conditionality when European funds are misused or mismanaged. Some of this should be targeting capacity building, but some of this is also lack of compliance on the part of Sahelian states who do not just lack capacity, but also lack political will to push for reform within their own administrations. I think the French approach in the Sahel has many, many flaws, primarily related to its counterterrorism policy. But I think it is right in demanding more from Sahelian partners. So I think this is something that we should, should be focusing on more with regard to the Sahel.
0: AJ, same to you. What policies would you like to see implemented in Somalia
2: I just want to conclude three things that we need to see implemented in Somalia. First is normalization relationship between the federal government and the federal member states in Somalia, specifically on the issue of Ghid region in Jubaland. And secondly, as the country is heading to election, having peaceful election, as well as a smooth transition of power. And lastly, when it comes to the wider uh, conflict in Somalia, we have seen that the military operation, which was ongoing for the last 12 years, has not resulted concrete and tangible results to end the conflict in Somalia. So I think uh, it is the time now to be looking at alternative ways of solving the conflict in Somalia, similar to the Liban in Afghanistan. So maybe it's the time that looking the way that Somalia looks, solving the uh, issue of the armed conflict, maybe it's the time for talking to them. Finally, also focusing on the COVID-19 responses and wider testing, as well as focusing on vaccination for the frontline Staff, as well, as the vulnerable uh, groups like the IDPs.
0: Thanks very much, AJ. That's really useful. Larry, you said that liberal democracies should have a more coherent strategic approach. What would such an approach consist of?
1: I'd like to zoom out to sort of the bigger picture of the strategic approach. And here I'd highlight three things. The first key step is recentering centering the vision for international security around a much more people-centred model for achieving security. The second thing is rethinking our model for exerting power and influence and using it to promote human freedom and conflict resolution. And then the third component would be a more systemic and holistic security strategy, recognising that the greatest security challenges are systemic and global and therefore require the reconstruction of collective and sustainable global solutions. On the first element, the case for a people-centred model, I think beyond the containment and sticking plasters approach that I've described earlier, rebuilding stability means a refocus on strategies that address the core. of conflicts and in particular that seek to restore state society relations. We know that sustainable peace in all settings and therefore international security and prosperity rests on human security and human rights fulfillment. And so the core elements are things like fair access to security, to justice, to services, resources, livelihoods, freedom and inclusion in political processes, the integrity and anti-corruption of public institutions and mechanisms to manage disputes. Those are the kind of core elements that we know can lastingly reduce instability that we need to focus on rather than getting distracted from them by immediate stabilisation concerns. The second core issue, if you accept that rights and governance are vital for conflict prevention, for controlling migration, for building peace, and to dealing with major systemic challenges and, and crises. What we're seeing is that when you get distracted from that, when you overwhelmingly focus the national security posture on threats posed by external enemies like Iran, Russia, China, that realization of the importance of rights and governance often gets sidelined. One thing you can observe about Russia and China is that they are implementing an incredibly sophisticated approach to extending their influence. And I think they un- they're they not doing this through military intimidation. There's an understanding that once you have a nuclear arsenal of a certain size, power is no longer primarily leveraged through military intimidation. So one feels that democratic countries need a much smarter approach to these power games, where they understand that militarising the competition between systems of government isn't a path to promoting ideals of democracy and human rights that we need to promote. The democratic societies, the biggest selling point they have is the power of the liberal democratic way of organizing life and politics. And I think that means we need to think in terms of overhauling security and economic partnerships that undermine peace and freedom, just as Biden is starting to do with Saudi Arabia. And here we also need to create strategic coherence between allies in setting incentives for democratization. We also need to understand that change that lasts usually comes from below in society, not through leveraging power on the international stage. And that means that liberal democratic countries need to scale up significantly their solidarity and support for civil society working for peace and freedom around the world. And we also need to rebuild structures and processes for taking the geopolitics out of conflict settings so that national and local actors can get on with dealing with the core issues themselves. So for example, we need an architecture for getting the US and Russia, getting the Middle Eastern powers to mediate their differences without destroying the social fabric of countries like Yemen, Syria, Libya, Egypt. And then with these international spoilers intruding less, then you need to support actors in Yemen, in Iraq, to tackle the breakdown of state society and intergroup relations themselves, inclusively and constructively on their own terms. So all of that requires greater political will, more investment in mediation at different levels, and it all needs to be grounded in in much more of a social and political economy understanding of what is driving conflicts. And along it, it requires investment in the construction of these new regional security structures so that Iran, Saudi Arabia have a different way to deal with their competing interests. Then the third element is this idea of a more systemic and holistic security strategy. One thing COVID has taught us is that we also need national security thinkers to grapple with and invest in tackling the real security challenges that threaten humanity aside from terrorism, from unwanted migration and from militarized geopolitics. And the threat of things like cyber or military confrontation, those who insisted on investing in Trident and aircraft carriers in the UK and who failed to invest in ventilators and intensive care beds look like poor custodians of national security today. Biggest systemic threats confronting humanity for tomorrow are widening inequality, environmental degradation, repressive governance, and tech driven social polarization and political fragmentation. When you think about those challenges, It's obvious that they're interconnected. So repressive political systems are unlikely to be strong environmental stewards, for example. And when you think about responding to systemic threats, the task is about promoting effective collective action. They can only be solved through like-minded countries working together um, and supporting those who are working for change also in divided, rested, unstable contexts. So to work effectively on those big picture problems, individual Governments need to be principled, charming, altruistic, have a long term vision, be team players, consistently acting as dependable contributors to collective, responsible, sustainable, and global solutions.
0: I hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as we did. We will release new episodes every 20th of the month, and you can listen to all previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts by searching for the Warpod or following us on Twitter at war underscore pod. Thank you and see you next time.